It's good to see the faithful few on the 4th of July, yes. You notice each week as the summer gets deeper and deeper, the rows get shallower and shallower, right? It's an effort to finally get someone on the front row. And we have five brave folks this morning, all right? There are still nine open spots for you who are brave. Uh, my name's Daniel. I am one of the elders and pastors here at Aletheia Church. And today I have been given the text of Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. So uh, let me go ahead and reread those to you this morning, and uh, we will get going. Thus the Lord God gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. To begin today's sermon, I want to ask you a question. I want you to consider something with me. What kind of God does it take for verse 45 to be true? Look at that verse again. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now, as you look at that verse, I'm going to ask you that same question in a non-rhetorical fashion. What kind of God does it take for verse 45 to be true? I said non-rhetorical. Go on. What does it take? A good God. A sovereign God. A faithful God. What else? Anything else? Almighty God. Yes, what else? Anything? A woke God. All right. We will leave the political commentary out. And uh, No, just kidding. Um, a promise keeper. Yes. So a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, good, just, righteous, intimately involved in His creation, truthful, faithful. These three verses that we are covering today are known as the theological heartbeat of the entire book of Joshua. Everything that we have covered in the book of Joshua finds its culmination right here in these three verses. But it began all the way back in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, where we see these opening words in the book of Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. 
Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So if we take this natural conclusion that is Joshua 21, 43-45, this conclusion of what began in Joshua chapter 1, we have seen some amazing things along the way. We have seen God completely and totally faithful to His commandments and to His promises to Joshua and the nation of Israel. So far, we have seen Rahab and the spies. We have seen God be faithful to His promises in that story. We have seen Israel cross the Jordan on dry land. God stopped the flow of water so the entire nation could cross on dry land. We have seen walls that fall in Jericho simply through obedience and screaming and shouting and entire cities' defenses collapse. We have seen the sin of Achan and what happens when you don't obey the commands of God, when you don't uh, be obedient to what He has told you to do and how serious God takes even one sin, that it was the downfall of an entire nation in that battle. We've seen the fall of Ai and God's faithfulness as they repented. We have seen the Gibeonite deception. We have seen the sun standing still. We have seen the conquest of the land of Canaan. We have seen the allotment of all the land to all the tribes in Israel. We saw the cities of refuge last week, and everything leading up in Joshua chapter 21 is God giving land to the Levites, those who didn't have an inheritance. God dispersing His priests among all the peoples and all the tribes of Judah. And I point this out to you to say that if you've ever tried to read through the Old Testament, every once in a while you run into these massive lists, right? And these things that just go on and on and on. All these words you can't pronounce, all these names you can't pronounce. But the problem is when we get into this and we're not paying attention, we miss what is the entire theological heartbeat of the entire letter because we weren't paying attention that here in these three verses, we find out that this is the culmination that God has fulfilled every single promise that He has made. And verses 43 through 45 sum up the entire book of Joshua in this way. Structurally, it's noted that verse 43, which speaks of the land in which Israel settled, this summarizes all of chapters 13 through 21. Verse 44, which speaks of the conflict with Israel's enemies, uh, summarizes chapters 1 through 12. And then verse 45 summarizes everything that precedes it. And what I want to point out to you is that everything God had promised to His people in Joshua 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, 
has now been meticulously delineated and allotted with scrupulous attention to detail and fairness. God has fulfilled every single word that he spoke to the nation of Israel. And in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45, we see the fulfillment of that promise. And so today, we're going to talk about the promises of God. The promises of God is one of the things that, that we as followers of Jesus need to incorporate into our lives on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Because these massive promises in Scripture give us hope and strength as we go throughout our daily lives, as we try to walk out our lives in faith to who Jesus is and what He has called us to be and what He has called us to do in this life. But what I, what I want to point out to you is something that I just, I call the arcs of promise. Like we're familiar with like narrative arcs, okay? But like there are arcs of promise where we see God make these promises. And sometimes you'll, you'll have a promise starts here and then it finds its culmination here. But sometimes it just kind of keeps bouncing along the way. And then you can draw this big, huge arc where you've seen God make this one promise and it just keeps getting fulfilled in different ways over and over and over throughout Scripture. And so we need to take note of these promises to see how big and faithful God is. Because I, there are going to be times in our lives where we're going, okay, God, are you really going to be faithful to this promise that you have made to me as your child? And we get to go back and say, Wow, every single word that God has ever uttered, He has always been faithful to every single word. And He wasn't just faithful for a day. He wasn't just faithful for a week or for a month, but for decades, for centuries, for millennia now, God has been completely faithful to fulfill every single word that He has ever spoken, and not one word of God has ever failed. And that is to be our strength as we walk out this life in this crazy world that we are living in. So when I talk about an ark of promise, I would say Joshua 1, 1 through 1-9, the ark begins there and it finds its culmination here in chapter 21. And we're dealing with about seven years of time. Over seven years, God was faithful to fulfill every single word that he uttered. That's a pretty small arc in biblical terms. I'm going to give you a little bit bigger story. This one covers about 700 years. Because here in Joshua chapter 21, 43-45, this is not the, as, as Joshua 1, 1-9, its fulfillment is in Joshua chapter 21, there's another promise that God made in Scripture all the way back in Genesis 12 that finds part of its fulfillment. In Joshua 21. Now, the promise in Genesis chapter 3 is much, in Genesis chapter 12 is much bigger, but part of its fulfillment is found here in chapter 21. And if you're familiar with scripture, you know Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3 is the beginning of the Abraham story or the Abram story. So pull that up there. I'll read it off the screen. Now, the Lord said to Abram, his name has not been changed yet. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Huge promise. There's no way I can cover all of this. This is still being fulfilled today as we go. But there are a few things I can point out to you along the way. Because we're, we're asking, can we trust this God? Are the promises of God worth, worth us holding on to claiming, will God be faithful to us, okay? So um, some of you may have no clue at all about this whole Abram, Abraham story. So I, I'm going to help you. I, I just I don't want you to imagine this now, okay? Abram, this dude is rich, okay? He is Elon Musk rich for his day, okay? This dude has it all. He has manservants. He has maidservants. He has cattle. He has crops. He has everything. He has his own standing army, okay? I mean, do you know how rich you got to be to have your own standing army that you are paying them and feeding them and taking care of them and all of their families? That's how rich Abraham was. He is 75 years old living in the land of Ur. He's with his family. He's got everything going for him. He is a pagan dude. He has no association with Yahweh whatsoever. And all of a sudden, Yahweh shows up and he speaks to Abraham and he says, dude, I want you at 75 years old to get up and to leave everything you've known, to take everything you have with you, and I want you to go to a land that I am going to show you, okay? I'm not even going to tell you where it is, right? You're just going to eventually be walking along the way, and one day I'm just going to say, surprise, here it is, okay? That, that is how this story goes. So when we say that Abraham has an incredible amount of faith, this is why we say this, right? He gets up and leaves everything Everyone he knows, except he takes his wife with him, believing that God is going to fulfill this promise to make him a great nation. There's only one problem if we're familiar with the story. He has no heir. But nonetheless, he gets up from where he is. He travels about a thousand miles on foot, camel, horse, donkey. We're not giving the details of how he got there. We just know he gets there over a long period of time. And eventually, he gets to this area called the Promised Land. Now, along the way, Abraham exhibits a lot amount of faith, but he had some pretty big screw-ups along the way, right? I mean, twice he tried to pass his wife off as a sister, just in case you don't know this, guys, if you're not married yet, when you do get married, don't ever pass your wife off as your sister, okay? It will not go well for you in any way, shape, or form. Because basically, he was afraid, because Sarah was really pretty, and he thought some guy wanted Sarah, and so he's like, okay, you can have her because she's my sister, right? Not a good thing at all. So he really messed up, okay? The, the other one, um, the whole uh, sleeping with his wife's concubine, thinking they can usurp this promise to bring about this heir into the world, did not go well. The Bible tells us a lot of things that are going on today in the Middle East is a direct result of that sin and then trying to usurp God's process, right? When you're going to be the father of a great nation and you sin in that kind of way, you can cause lots of problems through your lineage, okay? And we see all that being fulfilled today in the world. But eventually, 20 years later, and again, this is, this is, this is a big deal, right? At 95 years old, God gives him the promised heir, the promised son. So just imagine the amount of faith it took for Abraham to believe the promise of God that if he went and obeyed that God would do this, that he would travel, leave everything behind, he would travel a thousand miles, and he would have to wait 20 years for the promised heir to be born. 
And then along the way, God tests his faith with the offering of Isaac. Eventually, God provides a sacrificial lamb, which is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does for us and and our sins upon the cross. But Isaac has two boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob produces 12 sons. The 11th named Joseph, he brings about to rescue the entire nation because a great famine was coming. Joseph went through some really terrible things in his life and his brothers even sold him into slavery. And he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And along the way, Joseph gets raised to this incredibly high position in the kingdom of Egypt. The nation of Israel is rescued. They settle in the land of Goshen. They grow so big and so powerful, Pharaoh enslaves them. And they get enslaved for 480 years. God raises up a man named Moses, who we just heard about. God uses Moses to deliver the nation of Israel from the people of Egypt. He takes them out to where they cross the Red Sea and God destroys the army of Pharaoh as they pursue and try to destroy the nation. The people become disobedient and whiny and so God makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And just in case you ever get confused, like wilderness, does it have trees? No, I've been there. Just think desert, all right? So for 40 years, God supplies food and water every single day to where the people testify that none of their clothes wore out and their sandals never wore out in 40 years in the desert. God was good and faithful to every single one of these promises. This ark of promise covers about 700 years. Every single promise God is faithful to. Every single promise God fulfills. And we see all of that come to its conclusion. One part of it right here in Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. These three verses are gigantic for us. When my encouragement is going to be to you as you mark these in your Bible, as you try to memorize whatever you do, that when you are struggling through life, that you would go back to these three verses and remember the goodness and the faithfulness of God that not one word of God has ever failed. And if He can be faithful for seven years, if He can be faithful for 700 years, then you can be sure that He will be faithful to you in the 70 or 80 years that you live upon this earth. He will be faithful to you, to the generations that you produce, that you are coming, that are coming after you, that you break into this world. The Lord your God, a covenant God, will be faithful to you and will be faithful to the children of God. But I, I, I want to give another verse to add to it. To me, this is kind of the verse that turbocharges this entire sermon. And I'll be honest, as I mean, I've read the Bible before more than once. I don't know that I've ever heard this verse. I don't ever heard anybody preach about it or talk about it. And when I came across it this week, I'm like, why does nobody talk about this verse? This seems like this should be a verse that is Christians memorize all the time and is always at the forefront of our mind. Look at me to what it says in Jeremiah 1.12. Now, it says here, Then the Lord said to me, Then Yahweh said to me, You have seen well. 
For I am watching over my word to perform it. I want you to kind of take in the gravity of that statement. I am watching over my word to perform it. God is promising to Jeremiah and to us that whatever he says, he is intimately involved in making it happen. He is not some deist God who started the world and set it into motion, just let it go and Whatever happens, happens. But of the seven plus billion people on this planet and the hundreds of billions of stars that each exist and the hundreds of billions of galaxies that science has confirmed exist in the cosmos so far, God is watching over every single aspect of it to perform it to maintain its order, to make sure that every word that He has uttered and spoken to us, His creation, will come to pass. That's how intimately involved in your life and my life God is. Whether we feel it, whether we recognize it, God says, that is how intimately involved I am in your life and in all of the goings-on in this world. I hope you take some time this week just to meditate on that and how big and amazing God must be to make sure that every word that He has ever spoken is performed and fulfilled in this world and in your life. I'm pausing here because I'm now going to turn on the blinker and we are going to decelerate from the interstate that we're on. We're going to get up on the off-ramp and we're going to go a different direction here for a moment, okay? Because now we've been talking about God and how big He is. I wanted to set the stage in that way. But now I really want to make this personal for us and personal application. If you're a part of our Group Me channel, uh, I asked you a couple of questions for sermon help this week. If you're not involved, you're like, hey, I missed out. I'd like to know what's going on in the church. We communicate through uh, GroupMe. So after service, uh, when you fill out a connection card or whatever, go fill one out and just say, say, add me to GroupMe. We'll put you in there, all right? So for sermon help part one, I just asked you guys, what are your favorite promises of Scripture? This is a sermon about the promises of God. And I'm just going to read for you what people put in there, and they're in order of what you guys put in there. Um, but as you listen to these, I want you to tell me if you hear a pattern. All right, Because I'm going to ask you, I'm going to say, what commonality did you hear in these verses? I think it's very important for where we're going today. And they'll be up on the screen. I'm just going to blaze through them, not give you the Scripture reference, but you'll see them. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And he who was seated on the throne, seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. What did you hear? What did you see in those verses? that people are communicating to us about the promises of God. God is the one who fulfills them. What else? Faithfulness. What else? Huh? They're all about us. Yes. What else? He's in control. What else? Huh? All a continuous verb. Yes. What else? They promise good things. Yes. Nobody, nobody touched on any of the bad ones. <laughs> what else? He loves us. I would say life is hard, right? Life is a struggle. Life is challenging. I saw in there that people want to know that God is with them in their hardest times, in their worst times. People want to know that God is not going to turn His back on, on them. People want to know that God is active, that He is with them, and He is intimately involved in their life. Look, look at the first one. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If you've walked with Jesus long at all, you, you, you know this. You know that there have been times in your walk where you feel like you are stuck, that you aren't advancing, that you are not becoming more sanctified, you are not becoming more like Jesus, and you just feel stuck in the mud, stuck in quicksand. And you ask yourself, God, are you going to continue to grow me and be faithful to me to bring me on to completion because I, I am tired of struggling with this same sin over and over and over again. I am scratching, I am clawing, I am fighting to get victory over this sin and it does not seem to be doing any good. And we need to know 
that he who began a good work in us is going to be faithful to complete it. All that the Father gives will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Depending on how you were raised, depending on your current involvement in sin, you may feel at times as if you have lost your salvation, as if you aren't really saved in any way, shape, or form because you don't see fruit being born in your life. The devil may come to you and lie to you and say, a child of God would never do this. There's no way you could be saved and have committed that sin. And in that moment, you will need this promise from Jesus Himself that says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Remember how we said that it's God working in and all this? God is fulfilling all this? Who gives us to Jesus? The Father. That's why your salvation is secure. It's because the Father has come to you, has come into your life, and He has grabbed you, no matter how hard you were running and kicking and screaming, and He has picked you up and He has handed you over to Jesus. And Jesus says, because God the Father has handed you to me, I will never cast you out or let you go. No matter how bad it gets. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is one of those contextual promises we got to make sure we're getting, right? Because contextually, we're not talking about sanctification and life being hard. Contextually, we're talking about salvation. If you read everything up to this that Jesus is happening in Matthew chapter 11, it's all about woe to the unrepentant cities, right? He, He is speaking to a people who are trying to obey the law and by the law and by their obedience earn their way into heaven. Because this was the burden that the Pharisees had placed upon the people by there was the law of God, but all the rules, all the fences they had put around the law, keeping the people from the heart of God Himself. And so He's saying to them, all of you who by the rules are trying to earn your way into the kingdom of God, and you are overburdened with these silly rules. Did I break the law? Did I not break the law? So like, for example, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? I mean, there is a list. There were books written of what that meant. One, one of the rules was if you were going to throw something away on the Sabbath day, if you threw it underhanded, you were not breaking the law of God. But if your hand went above your shoulder, you had broken the law of God and you were sinned. I mean, they had volumes written on every little thing. If you walk so many steps, the people on the Sabbath day would count every single step that they took to make sure they didn't take too many steps to break the law of God. This was the burden that the Pharisees had placed upon the people. And this is why Jesus always got after them. And Jesus says, if you're tired of that burden of trying to earn your way into my kingdom and into my favor and into the kingdom of God, the only thing you have to do is put your faith and trust in me. If you will come to me and trust in my sacrifice for you, you can find rest for your soul. 
But there is no work that you have to do. It is solely as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 sum up. God grants you faith. It is a gift of God. And when you express that faith in Jesus, you step over from from death to life. Not because of anything good you've ever done. Because of what God has done for you in granting you the gift of faith. And that is the rest for your soul. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. God is going to perfect the things that concern me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Are we not the works of His hands? Do we not need His mercy? If you've never heard this phrase before, this is one of my favorite phrases that that we can just rattle off in Christianity. It's this one. Grace is God giving me what I don't deserve. I don't deserve salvation, but God gives me that. Mercy is God not giving me what I do deserve. I've done some pretty horrible things in my life. I deserve the consequences for those sins. God in His mercy so often does not give me what I deserve. God doesn't give you what you deserve. The fact that you will not be separated from God forever to eternal judgment and to eternal punishment for having sinned against Him and broken His holy law, that is God's complete mercy given to you that you do not deserve. And God works in our lives and He will not forsake the work of His hands. Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. We want to know that God is going to be with us every day until we draw our final breath. Jeremiah 29, 11, which I think should always be paired with Romans 8, 28, which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Because if you've ever been here before, you know that I love Jeremiah 29, 11, and I love to correct many of your bad theologies about Jeremiah 29, 11, because I can almost guarantee you, if you grew up in Christianity in a Christian household, when you graduate from the University of Florida, some believer you know is going to give you a graduation card that says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Well, just so you know, these verses immediately precede God sending His people off to 70 years of exile. This, when I give you this card and you graduate, it means, yes, you are going off of the workforce for 70 years of exile. And God has plans to prosper you. He has a future for you. Good luck. Have fun, right? I mean, but, but that's, that's the context, right? Now, now, we want to be, oh, you know, all the bad things. Now, again, God is working all things together for good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But it may involve 70 years of exile before you, real the good, before you see the good and gracious promises of the Lord. That's why context is... Always important in Scripture. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We want to know that God is making all things new. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise from Jesus. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Not, but take heart, 
I will remove you from all the troubles of the world. You will have tribulation. Maybe that's the greatest lesson we can learn out of this last year and a half. We don't control anything. I mean, 7 billion people are reacting to something that can only be seen by a microscope. You think about you ever thinking about that? Just like like just get away from get away from vaccines. I mean, the, the whole world is being run ragged by something none of us can see. And we actually think we're in control of anything. We do not control. Well, let's say we control so little. It takes so little to upset the entire world. We will have tribulation. There will be other things that come in your lifetime. There will be other things that come in my lifetime. Things come up in everyone's lifetime. But our hope, our promise, is not to be rescued from the tribulation. Our hope and our promise is that Jesus has overcome all those things. And that is where we are to find our hope and our joy, knowing that one day He will make all things new. I'll add one promise that I think we all need to keep in our tool belt, and it's Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I think there's a really good chance Paul here is echoing Jesus' own words from Matthew 6.33, where he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. This is a promise from Jesus that if we seek first His righteousness, God is responsible for meeting our needs. But what I want to point out here about Philippians 4.19 is look at the source of the promise. This verse begins with Paul speaking of God the Father in the most personal terms. And my God. And I think sometimes we're, we're afraid to, to claim that, right? Like we talk about like there's God. But, but how often in your language can you remember over the course of the last week or month or year where you've actually claimed, my God. My God is responsible to meet and supply all of my needs. See, Paul does not just say he is a God. Paul does not just say he is the God. Paul gets so real and raw and intimate in this moment that he says, my God is responsible for doing this. How often when you think about God, do you claim Him as my God? Are you so bold? This is why Hebrews 4 said we can boldly approach the throne of grace. But I think, I think sometimes we're just so afraid to. Even though we have been given this grace that we can approach the throne, you got to understand the, Hebrew, the context of Hebrews, right? I mean, they're just steeped in all the Old Testament image and language, imagery and language and going into the temple and going into the Holy of Holies and how only the high priest got to go one day a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, and how just intimidating it was to step into that. 
That the author of Hebrews says now because Jesus has torn the curtain from top to bottom, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can go right up to God Himself and say, My God, and speak to Him as if we speak to any other human being. That is what Paul is trying to get across to us when he says, My God will supply every need of yours to his reach. I mean, it, I mean, what a bold thing for Paul to say. Because he's not just saying about himself, right? He's saying for you, for me, for us. My God will supply you. That's how confident Paul was in the God that he served. Now, part two of the question I asked you on group me this week after we acknowledged and we saw these amazing promises in Scripture, I asked you, do you always have an easy time believing it? Because it's one thing to acknowledge a promise, but it's another thing to actually believe it, right? It's one thing to hear a promise spoken, right? I mean, do you have anybody in your life that, you, that they've said to you, hey, I promise, dot, 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 and you didn't believe a single thing that came after I promise? Why? Because you had a good reason not to, right? Or you had some wounding in the past that makes you really hesitant or reticent to believe any promise spoken by any human being because the people around you have never been very good and very faithful about keeping promises. So as I thought about this, I came up with some reasons, I think, of why we don't believe the promises of God. Now, now let, let me clarify something because we have to clarify terms here. When I use the word believe, I do not use it in the sense of a mental acknowledgement, all right? I, I, I'm, I'm assenting to this fact being true. I believe that what we believe is seen in what we do, right? Like, like if you want to know what someone actually believes, show me what they do, Right? Because what you do is always evidence of what you believe. Just because you acknowledge it does not mean you believe it. Now, some of the reasons that we don't believe the promises of God is pretty simple. We don't know them, right? Like if I were to ask you right now, write down every promise in Scripture you know, how big might that list actually be? I mean, I don't know how many promises there are in Scripture, but I, I, let's just go a minimum of a thousand. Is it safe to say that there's at least a thousand promises in Scripture? Can we can we go that? Could you even get close? Could you get to five hundred? One hundred? Fifty? Ten? Now, if God has made all these promises, and He's promised to fulfill every single one of them, and we don't know them, like, what does that say about us and our priorities? Because how do we fight back against the enemy if we don't have the sword of God's Word to respond to Him with, right? Because this is, this is just yesterday, right? Yesterday... I'm driving with uh, one of my kids in the car, and often when I have just one of my kids in the car, I ask them, anything you want to talk about in life? And depending on which child, uh, you know, as to how long it takes to get the answer, right? 
for the boys, it's kind of like, no. Just let three minutes go by. Okay, yeah, I have a question, right? Do that with the girls. Before the question's even out of your mouth, you're getting the response, right? But the one I got yesterday was, hey, anything you want to talk about? Yeah, Dad. You know, like every time now that I pray or I read the Bible or go to church, like I just hear Satan talking to me, telling me that the Bible's not true, that God's not real, that there's no point in doing any of this. And you don't think he's up to all that in our lives all the time? And I just said, so what do you do when somebody lies to you? You combat it with the truth. The only way to overcome lies is to speak truth to those lies. And see, if we don't know the truth of God, if we don't know the promises of God, how in the world do we fight back against the attacks of the enemy and make God prove Himself faithful? I think sometimes we're we're afraid to make God prove Himself faithful. Where the surest footing we have in this entire world is to look God dead in the eye and say, My God, You have made this promise. You wrote it out in your word. So now you have to fulfill it. When's the last time you were that bold and straightforward with God? When is the last time you stood that strong upon a promise of God telling Him that He has to fulfill His promise? What, you think He's going to get mad at you? Or saying, God? You said it. I'm expecting you to deliver. No. This is what God expects you to do. Because you need to do this for your own strength, for your own encouragement, to fight back against the schemes and the tactics of the enemy. You must stand upon the promises of God and claim the promises of God to yourself, to those around you, and to God Himself. So that when God is faithful, you will see that He is always faithful to His promises to fulfill and to perform every single word that He has spoken. He has already obligated Himself. All you have to do is claim the promise. And I think because of prosperity, preaching and teaching, name it and claim it, we're afraid to claim promises. Do not let someone rob from you what God has freely given to you. When God tells you to claim the promises and to stand on the promises of God, stand on it, claim it, jump up and down, shout it out as loud as you can until God fulfills it. Do not cower away from name it and claim it. Name it and claim it is something we should do as the children of God. We should just make sure we're naming and claiming the actual promises of God. That's the problem with prosperity theology. What it names and claims is not what God has promised. But then we think, oh gosh, we shouldn't name things and claim things because that's what prosperity preachers do. No, they just stolen. They have been deceived. And we now cower and are afraid to name and claim what God has actually told us to name and claim. And Satan is robbing you of your joy when you don't name and claim the promises of God. And if you're like, I don't know this is a promise of God, guess what? Ask somebody in your gospel community. If they don't know, ask me or Kevin. I promise we will have an opinion on it. 
So I kind of combined some points there. We don't know the promises of God. We don't claim the promises of God. Sometimes we don't like the promises of God, right? We don't like that verse that, hey, you're going to have tribulation. Right? It's, it's kind of like, there are just some verses. Can we just admit there are some verses in the Bible we don't like? I'm the only one. I always say Philippians 2.14, do everything without arguing and complaining. I hate that verse. Like, I, you know, like if I could Thomas Jefferson my Bible, that's the one I'd get. You know, just cut, cut it out of there. I, I don't like that one. Rejoice always. I don't feel like it. God says, I don't care. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances. Mm-mm. I don't like it at all. But why in the world would God say that? Give thanks in all circumstances. Some of you guys know, you know, I, I, I do business stuff and I have a mentor and he's started 70 or 80 companies. He currently, you know, he has a, a massive portfolio of companies. One of the principles for all their businesses is every business meeting begins with listing out all the people, all the pressures, and all the problems the company is facing. And then they give thanks to God about every single one. They rejoice in them and they pray about it. Now, what do you think that does for a company's culture? That they acknowledge all the issues that are going on and they give thanks to God for every single one of them. And they are, I mean, they are unabashedly about this. It revolutionizes the people. It revolutionizes the unbelievers in those companies. They're like, we cannot believe this stuff actually works. Like it is so chick, because he buys companies, right? He finds them, he buys them, they're in horrible shape. And they, principle number one, this is what we're going to start doing day one. Testimony after testimony after testimony. We cannot believe how much this has changed the company. We used to hate coming to work here. Now we love coming to work here. Because before it was all arguing, complaining. Now they give thanks for the people, pressures, and problems. I mean, does that not sound crazy to you? Because I, I want you to think about it. When you go into your classrooms, into your meetings, into your workplaces, into your offices this week, well, what are you going to hear when you go back? Right? All the time, people are complaining. But what if no one ever complained? What if you acknowledged But what if you gave thanks to God? God, thank you for bringing this person into my life over the weekend. You have shown me how much this person needs prayer. I'm going to start praying for this person. God, thank you for bringing, because apparently I lack in an area of sanctification in my life, and you want to use this circumstance to teach me patience. How would that change your life? How would that change the culture in which you worked and lived if people simply obeyed the Scripture? Other reasons we don't believe the promises of God is because we question God's character. Let's just be honest. We don't think God is as good as He says He is. We don't think He is as just and merciful as He says He is. We don't think He's as omnipresent, omniscient. We don't think that He's all those things. And so we question the promises of God because we don't actually believe God is who He says He is. Sometimes we falter for the lie, and this is the the first lie, right? Did God really say? 
You want to know probably the number one lie that people believe that, that, that you will fall into, that the world is collapsing in upon itself right now? Did God really say? And I could list a million things. Did God really say he created them male and female? Apparently not. People are falling for that lie all the time. Christians fall for that lie all the time. God very clearly said, I created them male and female. Like, that's it. God said it. The question is, are you going to believe it? I, I, I mean, I, I can't argue with I'm not going to argue with you about it, right? Like, God said it. I, I believe it. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm not trying to be insensitive. Actually, I'm trying to be the opposite. I'm trying to point you to the truth of Scripture. Because God actually said, I created them male and female. Those are your options. Anything else says, did God really say? No, he didn't. He really said he created them male and female. Guys, Satan is lying to you all the time. In the programs that you watch, on your social media feeds, the demonic activity that swirls around us and speaks to us. When you hear, you suck, you stink, you're awful. Where do you think that comes from? You don't think those are lies straight from the pit of hell? You don't think that demonic activity is speaking into your life? The problem is you, you let it into your life, right? Because you don't speak back to it. One of, one of my favorite stories that a friend of mine who's a pastor tells about this little old lady, and they were talking about Satan speaking to them, and she's like, no, Satan hasn't spoken to me in years. She's like, what do you mean Satan hasn't spoken to you in years? Oh, because I finally learned the trick to make Satan go away. He's like, well, do tell, because I, I, I really want to know this trick. She goes, well, you know, Satan would always come to me, and he would say things to me like, hey, you know, you don't, you don't deserve salvation. Like, you're really awful and you're really terrible. He'd come say all kinds of things to me. So I finally just made it a habit. I finally asked myself one day, what is it that Satan hates? Like, how can I get Satan to go away? And so after enough time and over a long enough period of time that every time he would accuse me, I would acknowledge his accusation. I would embrace his accusation. I would say, you know what? You're right. I am in myself awful. I am in myself bad. But you know what? Jesus has saved me from every single one of those things. And I would start singing and I would start praising. So I just made it the habit that every time he came to me, that I would respond with truth and I would sing and I would praise God, I found that over time, he came around less and less and less. And what I figured out was the one thing that he really hates is to hear God praised. And what he can know 100% every time for the rest of my life, if he ever comes to me, that is going to be my immediate response to praise God. And you know what happened? He actually stopped coming around. Because he hated to hear God praise more than he enjoyed speaking lies to me. Now, I can't validate that experience or tell you that was what will happen from you, but it's a powerful story to how one little person you and I will never meet combated the lies of the enemy. That every time he came with a lie, 
She not only spoke truth to that lie, but she praised God in the midst of that lie. And she would tell you that Satan left her alone. Are we willing to be so bold and so courageous to speak truth to those lies and to praise God when those lies come? Another reason we don't believe the promises of God is that we look at the world around us rather than the one who is in control of the world around us. Guys, listen. The Bible says very clearly in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. You know, the theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better, right? But look at what it says in Hebrews, oh, I got it right here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 about Jesus. Putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. Now think about that. Nothing is outside the control of Jesus. Not the virus, not inflation, not the monetary markets, not fiat currency, not dictatorships, not republics, not democracies. None of those things are outside the control of King Jesus. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Just because you can't see it with your own eyes does not mean it is not the governing reality of this world. King Jesus is in control. When He died for our sins and was buried and was resurrected, when He ascended into heaven after being on this earth for 40 days after His resurrection, He ascended to His throne. Right now, King Jesus is ruling and reigning the cosmos from His throne. The Word of God declares that He is interceding for you as the children of God. The Spirit of God is interceding for you as the children of God. You have no reason not to believe in His promises. Because every single thing that has been spoken in Scripture has been completely and totally fulfilled is currently being fulfilled and will completely be fulfilled in the future. Because the book of Revelation, and I'll close with these two verses, concludes this way as an encouragement for the people of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
Children of God, have faith. Children of God, stay strong. Children of God, claim the promises of God in this life. For one day, Jesus will come and make all things new. And we will rule and reign with Him forever in a world completely completely free of Satan and his deception. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this time. Father, today has declared Independence Day as our country. How I wish it was that we were truly free. Father, for though many years ago we may have claimed independence from a ruling entity, the world is currently being ravaged by the prince of the power of the air. And it's because we don't believe you. Because we don't believe in your law. We don't believe in your righteous standards. We don't believe in you and who you are. Some are foolish to say you don't even exist. And Father, it's hard to live in a world like that. It is hard to live in a world that is at war with itself, where bodies are at war with themselves, where families are at war with themselves, where municipalities and states and countries are at war with themselves. It is hard to believe that we are truly free and independent. But yet the Scripture does say that we are free, that if Christ has declared us free, that if we are the children of God, we are free indeed. But so, Father, where you're so often looking for that freedom in the things of this world, and it's just not going to happen where there is tribulation. Though we may stand up for right and we may stand up for truth, the only true freedom we can experience in this life is to be found in King Jesus. And that is your good and gracious promise to us. That all who believe with their heart and confess with their mouth will be saved. God, I pray for every human being here today, for every human being who will hear this sermon. God, that they would experience the freedom that comes from Jesus. Help us to walk in that freedom today as we also walk in the tribulation of this world. May we proclaim the truth of the gospel to every corner to the end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.